All right, guys. On today's episode of the Trade Busters podcast, I'm very excited. This is going to be a little different than our usual episode and content that you guys are used to. Today, we have as our guest Andrew Beer. He is the founder of Dynamic Beta Investments. And the reason I got Andrew on here was because, you know, as I alluded to in my last episode, um, I've been thinking a lot about how to combine options with, you know, multiple strategies, multiple underlines. And this idea, and I've talked about this in the past where, you know, stocks, ETFs, or, you know, even like bonds and T-bills, they're essentially marginable. So in a portfolio margin account, you know, we can take advantage of the capital efficiency by essentially thinking of our option strategies as an overlay on top of whatever we're holding. And now up until this point, you know, some people might have used just plain vanilla index funds like SPY, QQQ. Um, of course, we know all, how that's all been going this year, uh, even like TLT. And so I really have been diving into and researching kind of alternative products, alternative investments, something else that can be used as a core holding in your portfolio in addition to sort of the vanilla index funds. And so um, I don't know if you guys have been following this space, uh, the finance space, FinTwit, just kind of the idea of managed futures, trend following. Uh, those have really been in vogue recently. And so that's why I decided to get um, Andrew on the show to talk about what he does at Dynamic Beta Investments. And um, we're going to get into all that. But before, you know, let's just go ahead and uh, get Andrew on and talk a little bit about his background who he is, and dive right into what he does. So Andrew, first of all, thank you for taking your time to come on the show. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Thank you, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate you uh, uh, inviting me. Yeah. So let's ju just give a quick overview, you know, who you are, what your company does, and uh, and we'll get right into it. Okay. So I'll start off by saying, by A, I am not a quant, and B, I am not an options trader. So, so, so you'll have to, uh, uh, as we as we talk through stuff, you'll 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 see that. Um, but basically, I've been in the hedge fund industry for nearly thirty years. Um, I started when the industry was really really small. Um, I did kind of very traditional hedge fund like things. You you know, kind of walk into a hedge fund, you see somebody who's pouring through documents trying to find an informational edge, or or um, you know, trying to find things that are materially mispriced. And, uh, you know, then I went on my merry way. I left this big hedge fund that I that I'd worked at and I went and started my own hedge funds, one in the commodity space and and one also in um, uh, this focus on the greater China region. And I, I was very lucky. I had great partners in 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 both those businesses. Um, but the past 15 years, I've really focused on 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 one thing and one thing alone, which is, you know, if you want the diversification benefits of a couple different kinds of hedge fund strategies, but you, know, you can't invest in a an offshore hedge fund. Um, you know, you you care about fees, you care about liquidity. Um, you know, you want something that's probably not going to blow up on you. Um, you know, how do you do that well? And can you put it into a mutual fund? Can you put it into an ETF or or the equivalents uh, offshore? And so, you know, so our our firm is called Dynamic Beta Investments. We manage a bit over two billion dollars today. And, uh, and, you know, we call ourselves kind of a one trick pony, um, because the one thing we do, we don't try to build our own hedge fund strategies. So, you know, a lot of guys would get on here and tell you how their models the best, or they do this, and they do that the best. Um, we don't try to do that. Um, other people, you know, have businesses where they give money to hedge funds, and, and they want to find who's the best hedge fund in a particular area, and they're going to give them money. We don't try to do that either. Rather, we believe that in certain hedge fund strategies, 
that it's you know you can you can kind of figure out what the big trades are you know what the big guys are doing uh, are they shorting treasuries because they think rates are going to go up are they buying crude oil because they think um, you know there's going to be a supply squeeze and so you know so what we really do is just try to figure out what they're doing and then just copy it in a low cost efficient way and then put it into a really investor friendly package like an ETF. Okay, great. And just to foreshadow a bit, the the, the product that you guys have that we're going to be focusing on this episode is DBMF, that's the ticker symbol. And um, before I forget, the usual disclaimer is that everything on this show is, of course, for informational and educational purposes only. You know, neither I'm not a financial advisor. We're not recommending any particular product. But uh, with that out of the way, I did want to mention a good point is like what you did about what you said about fees. You know, for me, like I, I do personally believe, you know, you you get what you paid for. So if something's quality, it's maybe worth it. But of course, the lower fees is always better. But I think the more important point is just the access, because with ETFs, you get access to, you know, typically hedge funds, you know, fees aside, they usually have high minimums. And so typical retail investors don't qualify to invest or get exposures to these strategies where with an ETF, it's a, the barrier to entry is a lot lower. So like now with the products available and the accessibility for retail and what's out there, I think it, it opens up a whole new world of different opportunities. And so, and as I alluded to, I've been uh, really interested in kind of the, the trend following space. And I'm a total tourist to this space, as I mentioned earlier. So I'm going to kind of rely on you to maybe set the stage and just set some definitions. So first of all, you know, what is trend following? You know, why do trends happen? Why is there an opportunity when they do? Um, so, so trend following is, is basically... And, and again, I'm depending. I'm not sure, you know, the people on on, on this podcast, um, you know, so the direction that they come in. If you guys are trading options, you believe the markets are not efficient, right? I mean, you you, you believe that there are going to be mispricings, and these are going to be really compelling ways to capitalize on it. Um, one kind of mispricing in the market uh, relates to trends, and and the basic idea is that most people in the markets are human, and we humans have our own emotional biases and. You know, when the world changes, a lot of us fight the change and, you know, because maybe we made money in the old regime and and we don't welcome a new regime that's coming in. And and so, you know, trend following is basically the idea that, you know, sometimes when gold is going up, it'll just keep going up. You know, it's it's sort of the the I often think of that scene in that movie Trading Places where, you know, everyone starts screaming buy and then somebody sells sell and then everyone starts selling sell. And so so, you know, I think I think we all. I think everybody in this call would agree that that we're not these coldly rational people who walk into the office every day and you know do cost benefit analyses on everything. Rather, you know, if we have a portfolio that has a lot of tech stocks and somebody rings the inflation bell, we have a strong reason to try not to believe it because it's probably really bad for the things that we already own. Um, so, so trend following is basically a it, at its core, it's a very simple strategy, which is that sometimes things are that are going up will keep going up and some things that are that, that are going down will keep going down uh and and they'll often go down the reason the opportunity is there because they'll often go down go up more or down more than the rest of us expect and so trend following as a strategy is is a bunch of really really smart guys with very sophisticated computer systems that are looking at recent price movements so you know they'll look at the price movement of crude oil and dissect it in 50 different ways and try to discern from that, is it going to keep going up uh, or not? 
And and it, is that more or less attractive than the two-year treasury, which keeps going up? Maybe we should be shorting more of the two-year treasury. Maybe we should have a little bit of each. And so it's a it's a it's a strategy that's been around for decades. Um, I had the privilege of doing a call with a guy um, uh, last week whose firm has been around for fifty-eight years. Right, so this is not a new area. Um, what is new is what you alluded to is that I think really for the first time people particularly in the ETF world, are starting to get access to it. And that's that's what we're trying to drive is a way for more people to get this strategy. So you mentioned about how options traders are trying to take advantage of inefficient pricing. And so fundamentally, you're saying trends, the reason there's an opportunity is because when the trend happens, the price may move beyond the point where it's also expressing some kind of inefficiency, where it's moving beyond where the price should be. So if it goes up, it keeps going up. If it goes down, it keeps going. I mean, it's going to revert eventually, but when a trend is happening, it may go beyond what efficient market may suggest the price should actually be at. Sure. And I mean, it's actually, it's it's philosophical, I think, very similar to probably the way you guys look at it. So I'll just give you a kind of do an aside for a second. One of the, the things I found really interesting when I first um, started to make investments in the commodity space in the early 2000s was that there were certain markets, like the power markets, where options pricing models didn't work, right? And, and it was because if you were trading, um, uh, if, if somebody was pricing an option, they were kind of making certain assumptions about distributions and things like that. But, but in something like the power markets, if you flip from coal to natural gas, all of a sudden your costs you know, could, could go up four times. So really good options traders back then would, would, you know, would basically say the option itself is mispriced. Because whoever's pricing that option is thinking about making certain assumptions that don't apply here. Um, in in trend following, the idea is that you know we whenever we look at something. So the, the example I've been using is is the yen. Right? The yen started the year at one fifteen, and uh, and over the preceding year it had gone from one hundred five to one fifteen. In in currency land, that's a really big move. And 115, by the way, 115 means it's weaker than than it, than it is at uh, at 105 because it means the dollar buys more yen. Okay. And so so people looking at this basically said, wow, the, you know, the yen's already had a big move, but and so so what does a human being do at that point? You know, they say, well, okay, I I think the yen is going to go down more. I think that the Fed's going to raise rates faster, and and that's going to be good for the dollar and bad for the yen. But by how much? Right, it had already had this big move. It had been kind of range bound between 105 and 112 for years, and it had just broken out of that range. And so, a human strategist looks at that and says, "You know, I'm going to go way out on a limb. I think this thing might go to 125." Again, a huge move, right? I mean, you'd like you'd almost be famous if you made that call and you were right. And um, and then you know, then today it's at 150, like nine months later, uh, and so. Literally nobody in that I'm aware of in the world thought that that the yen could go to 150 this year. And so what happens is a human, when you see it start to move, you doubt it. Right. It's, you know, I, I said I just four weeks ago, I said it was going to go to 125 and it's already moved to 122. OK, so I can make three dollars or I can make three yen one way. But if it goes back, I'm going to lose seven yen back the other way. Like you start to cut positions, you start to to, to take gains. And and these computer models are very very different from us. So so we, as you say, it's going to revert, right? We all assume it's going to revert. It's going to go back to where it was. These models assume the opposite. 
they assume that something sometimes when it starts to move it's just going to roll down a hill and start accelerating and uh and so here we are at 115 and the yen i believe is the is the single biggest money maker for these strategies this year because it is a trend that is so far outside of people's expectations um and it has gone on gone on for so long um so you know so again the idea is that that these unexpected things happen things move far more than people expect and uh, and in those circumstances, these strategies tend to do really, really well. All right. And and you mentioned, you know, systems and models that assume the trend keeps going. And of course, at some point they have to determine it's going to reverse. We'll, we'll touch on that in a second. We'll talk about kind of the systematic approach. But I think one of the reasons uh, trend following is appealing is because presumably it's it's uncorrelated to the broader market. And that's partially because of the different markets that you can trade trend following in. So can you touch upon, you know, just a handful of what are the markets that trend followers trade in and what is the instrument they use to express, you know, or, or follow the trend, so to speak? Okay, a very good question. So trend followers are also called managed futures funds, and they're also called CTAs. So it's designed to make it incredibly confusing. Um, managed futures just simply means that these are actively managed strategies that, you know, maybe long oil today, but maybe short oil in six months. Right. They're not they're not wed. It's not like a commodity product that's just long commodities uh, over time. Um, so they're they're dynamic, they're tactical. And then futures is just their investment weapon of choice. That if you want to uh, you know, if you wanted to bet that the SP was going to go down tomorrow, you guys could buy puts, you could, depending on how much you thought it would call, you could sell calls, you could do all sorts of different ways of expressing that view. If you just want to make the most simple and efficient way of betting that the S&P has been going down and it's going to keep going down, you can short an S&P 500 futures contract. Right. And, and futures and, are capital efficient and Delta one. So there's none of that non-linearity. Exa- it's just exactly. a straight bet, right? It's a straight, it is a straight bet. And and again, you know, in the, in the ball rolling down the hill category, it's, you know, the S&P has been going down, the models determine they think it's going to keep going down, therefore short a futures contract. The, the reason, um, you know, there are guys who will take this information and do it through options and do it through, you know, other kinds of instruments. But the core of the strategy over time has just been 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 betting on uh, been betting through futures contracts. And and part of it is because, you know, if you want to go seamlessly short and then if your model changes its mind a month later and you want to flip back to long, it's just a very, very efficient way um, uh, uh, to go in and out. And. Um, and then CTAs is sometimes a term that's used. That's it's sort of a it's a little bit of a weird term because it's it basically refers to red uh, regulation as a commodity trading advisor because these futures contracts are, are regulated as commodities. But I just I give you all three terms because they're used somewhat interchangeably and and somewhat confusingly. Is commodity trend advisor sort of like the I guess referring to the person, and then tra- managed futures is referring to the type of strategy or how Pretty, they they manage. Yeah. Pretty much. I mean, CTAs just became, it was a term that came up in the 1980s. It was just a term of art that people used, and it kind of captured the whole space. Um, obviously, there are people who are CTAs who don't do trend following. I was um, about to say, I, I heard somewhere that uh, trend followers or trend following it typically can be a, a type of CTA, but CTAs don't always do trend following, like, exactly. like you just said. Okay. Exactly. Well, look, you know, we are we are a CTA, and, and we are not a trend follower. We are a follower of the guys who follow trends. Right, right. So, we'll, we'll get into that in shortly. Not to confuse people, but we'll get into that. Okay. And so let, let's talk a little bit about sort of 
how they do this sort of like a quantitative approach or systematic approach like how what is it like how do they determine when a trend starts and how do they determine when a trend ends or reverses so um so everybody who does this has a slightly different take on it sometimes a very different take um usually the way that i think about it is that they're not most guys are not looking to tell to anticipate that a trend will happen they hop in when a trend has started okay good distinction and yeah. and so you know so there are guys who you know when stan Druckenmiller made his inflation call uh in the beginning of uh late 2020 early 2021 there wasn't a sign of inflation yet right that's what we hold up as the the ideal it's a contrarian call and he's you know he's seen something that nobody else has yet seen that's not what these guys do they they are are, are picking up breadcrumbs when they see something moving that's when it captures their attention and and then they hold it and so the question is then when do they get out and and how do they get out and they usually get out in two ways one way is that they've been holding it and they've been making money and they've been making money and they've been making money and then it reverses sharply and and all of a sudden kind of the alarm bells go off in their models and they say hey we thought this was a trend but it reversed sharply on us so um you know so time to uh you know time to reconsider the whole idea of the trend and maybe dial back that position and again they're not they're it's not like they because they're diversified across these markets they're always not just looking for if they don't like this trend then they'll hop into another trend they'll just shift they're always trying to shift capital around to where they think the very best trends are just like a stock picker you know doesn't hold stocks just because he's had them he's looking for you know the new stock the new the new opportunity and um and then you know the other way in which in in which they get out of a trend is when the trend just tapers off and so you know we saw that earlier this year with crude oil where you know in the beginning of the year these guys loved crude oil um according to what what our models were showing and uh but then then crude oil went through this period and then it was you know is there going to be a taper is there going to be a pivot is there not going to be a pivot and so crude oil kind of levels off and again you know if you're thinking about this from a trend over some period of time and you see it tapering off you, you know what the models will basically say is wow it looked like this really compelling trend and it was going to we were in this looked like we were going to be in this commodity super cycle and it was going to go to 200 and now it's kind of reversed a little bit it's kind of it's bouncing around it's not really moving Oh, but hey, look at the yen over here. That's moving nicely. And then you kind of shift capital into, into a more interesting trade. And so, you know, so the idea is when these strategies do well, it's in a year like this, it's because they've made four or five, six or seven dollars on a trade. And then when it reverses, they lose a little bit. Maybe they give back a dollar. Um, in in more difficult times in the strategy, you'll have more periods where you know you make two dollars and you give back one over here you enter a trade over here and then it reverses just after you enter it so this kind of like it's it's you know it's usually like like a when the strategies go down it's, it's more like a series of paper cuts than it is it is a a single concentrated bet you know that these guys like a like a people who own tech stocks today that are down huge amounts it's not it's not holding on with a white knuckle grip to the same position so you mentioned uh they want to get into a trend that's already happening so are they looking at certain moving averages or certain yeah i guess like what is one i know there's probably different ways but is that a typical one just to look at some some moving average or different times yeah I, I mean there so like a really simple one would be um 
uh, you know, 100-day moving average. Has the S&P 500 broken above or below? Has the 10-year Treasury broken above or below its 10-year move? I mean, it's 100-day moving average. And that would, I mean, in a, an extremely simple version, that would be a buy or sell signal. Right. Um, the reality is these are, you know, incredibly smart guys who are saying, great, that that model you know, if we have been doing simple things like that for the past hundred years, it's a it's a surprisingly reliable way of making money. But let's do better, right? Like, you know, you know let's let's not just look at the hundred-day moving average. Let's measure the volatility of it over that period of time. Let's try to compare it to other asset classes to test the strength of that trend. So there are all, all these different ways that you've got, you know, tons of really really smart people with who are sitting around and how do they make their models better? You know, how do they? get into that trade a little bit earlier how do they get out you know at the at, as opposed to you know how do they get out for before before it reverses on them um and um so everybody does have their 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 different approach but i think to me when i look at how the strategy functions you know what they often what 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 they collectively and end up with are identifying things that are so what what they're identifying are things that that have been happening in the markets as opposed to things that haven't been happening that they think will happen. And it's just it's just sort of a big philosophical difference. Like when when they're short the yen and you look at what the yen has been doing, it's because the yen has been going down. When they're short the two-year treasury and they've been making money because rates have been going up and you look at what's been happening with the two-year treasury. So so it's it's just it's it's a sort of a more sophisticated way of capitalizing on things that have been happening in the markets and are likely to continue to happen. And I think one of the reasons trend following can be so uncorrelated and generous because, and as you've alluded to, you know they can go long or short depending on you know because trends can go in both directions, and there's you know multiple different markets and we'll talk about in a second you know you guys focus on the most liquid ones but in the entire kind of universe of tradable markets that trend followers may may do depending on their size and scalability, is it is it hundreds or it's not thousands is it or or yeah, maybe hundreds or at least dozens, right? Just like of, of individual markets. Yeah, yeah, and, and kind of underlying. Yeah, so um, it's it's you know because they're trading in futures contracts, it's dependent upon the futures that people are willing to use. Right. Um, so you know if you if you look at something like uh, so there are you know fifty to a hundred uh, reasonably tradable futures contracts. Um, okay. That that number will change over time. As I mean, you know, for instance. Arguably, you know, certain crypto things, you know, now could conceivably part be part of that list. Um, and you know, and so so what most of these guys will say is that um yeah, but just I mean, if we just were to try to do this with a 10-year treasury, it doesn't really work because there are gonna be plenty of times when there's just nothing interesting going on with the 10-year treasury. But if we have all these different instruments and all these different markets, there's always something going on, right? There's always a party somewhere. And so, you know, th their models are designed to, you know, kind of hunt out where the best opportunities are in this pretty broad opportunity set and then find the right way to position it and play off it. Yeah. And and I know there's obviously the, the U.S. equity market, there's all kind of the international different countries, metals. Um, and I don't know if people still, I mean... Like I've heard, like orange juice and like pork bellies. I don't know if that's those something people. No, trade. they do. I mean, it's, okay. yeah. I mean, you know, and lumber and right. you know, jet fuel and natural gas and I mean, there are you know there are a million of these things. I mean, I mean, the whole you know the futures contracts were built originally for people who were trying to hedge commodity exposure, and and then then they've evolved into these financial futures like the S and P. Um, 
but you know, but if you're a you know if you're an orange juice producer in Florida um, and you want to hedge your orange juice production, you're probably doing a futures contract um, uh, uh, in Chicago on 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 future on on oil uh, on orange juice prices. Right, right. And whether or not that particular future is liquid enough to do trend following, that's another question. But I mean, there's just tons of different futures on on all kind of different commodities and, and underlines. So. Yep. So the, the main idea is, okay, so trends, you know, that kind of is what gives the opportunity, trend following, you know, it's very systematic, you know, and it all sounds very complex, which is why traditionally it's been hedge funds to have the capital to kind of trade in so many different underlines. And that's why it was traditionally has been hard for retail individual investors to access or have exposure to these types of strategies. And so this is where you guys come in and, you know, DBMF, let, let's talk about what, what is it, you know, what is the goal, you know, why should someone consider choosing or allocating to, to this product? Sure. So, so, um, Lynn, and let me, I'm going to do a little bit of, of a, of an aside for a second, because, because when, when we came at this space, um, we were thinking about it, not as much on a standalone basis, but rather as a complement to to exposures we could get very easily through stocks and bonds and things like that. Um, and, you know, from a from a diversification perspective, what makes managed futures really unusual if you're building an, and, and by the way, I'm, you know, I think equity beta is a great investment over a long period of time. Uh, bonds, you know, have been great investments for at, at, at certain periods of time. It's, it's a lousy investment this year. Um, but it's not, it, it's, you know, the idea of our building around or endorsing the strategy was not to say that we don't like other asset classes. Um, but what, what makes it very unusual is when people are thinking about diversification and they already have exposure to stocks and bonds, the question is what adds value to that? And it's there are usually two features. One is that it just marches to the beat of its own drum. So if you know your stocks and bonds are both going up or down over one month or, or two month period of time, and this is just going in a different direction, when you look at the whole package, it tends to be smoother. And in general, people like smooth because a lot of the people who have money invested you know, are really just trying to find the way for their money to grow most reliably between now and when they retire at X, X age, and they're going to be confident they're going to have enough money uh, in retirement. Um, and the other thing is, is you know, the other kind of Thing that people really like in these portfolios is something that does really well in a period like this, you know, when uh, particularly, and people often think about it in bear markets. And, and so the way I've, what I've described about managed futures is that, you know, on its surface, it's got more diversification bang for the buck relative to stocks and bonds than anything else that we found, uh, that it has almost no correlation over time. So it does march to the beat of its own drum, but also it's kind of hit the trifecta on 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 crises in that during 2000 to 2002 the space went up a lot like 40 percent plus and in 2008 it went up north of 20 percent and then this year it's up 35 or 40 percent and so it, the whole idea of managed futures is really and and our the thesis of our business is you know it's easy to get exposure i mean you mentioned using spy or something as as you know as kind of the core investment I wouldn't, the way that I would frame it is not necessarily SPY versus this. I would say it's, 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 it's most effective and most valuable as part of a package. Um, 
but I just I wanted to kind of clarify that because I think we always when I think about these different asset classes, I always think them as 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 in some sort of an integrated fashion uh, relative to other things that people are doing. Sure. And uh, do you have any in, inkling of why in particular it does so well in, I guess, periods of stress? Is it because of volatility and that's when trends happen? <laughs> Or I, so I think they happen, and my my view on this is a little bit different from. There are a lot of academics who study this, and, and I, I don't find the research terribly compelling. Um, uh, the, the 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 basic argument is that uh, you know we all have all these kind of behavioral biases, and and when we kind of make irrational decisions, but but to me it's it's a little more basic than that which is that every now and then you get this big regime shift in the world. You know, I mean, at, at the end of the dot-com crisis, oh, we're all going to have, you know, fiber optics and, and, and we're going to have holograms of ourselves, you know, like being beamed into offices. And, and I mean, it was like, it was, it was, people just kind of thought the world was going to change like really, really, really fast. And then it didn't. And we went through this, you know, kind of difficult bear market. Obviously tech stocks went down 80%, but it was, when you're going through a period like that, um, it, it's not obvious where it's going to end up. And, and in fact, you know, people fight it every step of the way. Uh, during the GFC, I mean, remember 2005, 2006, 2007, I mean, it, everyone thought real estate would never go down. And, and nobody understood kind of the, the degree of the interlinkages in, in it. So, so it takes a while for this to flow through. Right now, we're dealing with, with inflation. You know, a, a ton of people have been anesthetized by monetary easing and government intervention during the 2010. 60-40 portfolios did well every year. You know, both both stocks and bonds were going up at the same time because they were being driven by an underlying force. And and we're going through a very, very difficult and wrenching regime change where we're looking at a very, very different world. And, and that's flowing through all sorts of markets and relationships between different asset classes. And so what you're seeing is a lot of things that are happening now are just so far outside of what people thought was possible even a short period of time ago. Um, in in August, God, I think it was in August uh, 2021. I mean, it was like that recently. Most economists thought there would be no rate hikes this year. Uh, and it, it's it's... You know, the people thought that inflation would be transitory. People thought, right. I mean, it's just, it's, and so, so to me, the really interesting question is why do people fight it the way that they do? And, you know, and so uh, I, I've written some stuff about Kathy Wood and the way, and, and the way she talks about the world. And in some ways, I actually have an enormous amount of respect for her because she did something very, very gutsy, which was launching this, you know, the suite of active ETFs uh, on her own um, back in 2015 or 16. Um, and it, and, you know, there's not at all obvious that it would have been a success, but, but, you know, people ask her like, what do you think about inflation? Well, I, before she opens her mouth, I know what she's going to say. Like inflation is terrible for her portfolio, right? I mean, in, right. in all of her stocks are based upon, sure, they have no earnings now, but they might have earnings in 20 years. And if, if interest rates are rock bottom, we're going to discount those back at a very, very low interest rate. A world with higher inflation and higher interest rates means the value of that is not 100, as you thought, but it's 10 when you discount these things back. And so, so you know, there is no scenario where she's going to come out and say, ah, I'm sorry, I was, you know, 
I think the next big trade is value stocks. Let's pile into value stocks. And so, so I think, I think, you know, we're all faced with constraints about the different decisions that we've made. And you enter a period like this, going back to the yen trade, you know, it's, it, it was very, very hard to make a call that that was that radical. I don't know if a single person who said they thought the two year treasury yield would be four and a half percent today. These are, these are, crazy outlandish moves. And so back to the that simple analogy that I was saying about when a trade works really well, it's because you make $10 in it and then it starts to taper off and you get back one. It makes $5 and it gives back one. And 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 it's so so that's what makes this environment has made this environment almost like shooting fish in a barrel for for the strategy because there are these big trades and they just go on for much longer than people expect. Yeah, and, and so you know, DBMF is is basically an ETF that essentially can take advantage of these kind of opportunities. And and you made this comment about you guys aren't trend followers; you guys follow the trend followers. So can you explain how what you mean by that? And, sure. And <laughs> what what makes DBMF different than investing with a you know a CTA directly? Sure. So so first of all, there there have been very 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 few products in ETF form. Um, and and there is a ton of money in ETFs, and it's growing hand over fist every year. And so we decided to launch our strategy uh, in an ETF. Uh, we rolled it out in in 2019, and I'm you know, pleased to say it's got about a billion one in assets today, and it's getting a lot of attention. Um, but but what we do when we looked at managed futures as an investor, um, what we were looking for was manage or trend following, we wanted the whole space, right? So if you said, you know, back to your example about SPY, you pick SPY because it's all equities, right? And all equities or the 500 largest US stocks are going to be much less risky than saying, uh, you know, I'm just going to put it all on meta and I'm going to use meta as my, you know, basically try to leverage meta, right? Okay. And so so we, we had the same view toward the managed future space. When you look at the data on it, this is an area where, you know, the guy who was the star last year somehow manages to hit the windshield this year. And it happens all the time. And so, so how do you get exposure to the whole space? Um, and we looked at it a lot of different ways, but we've, we the most efficient way that we found was basically that we could look at what the big players were doing. And I, we can't figure out what they're doing at the level of, you know, are they buying or selling orange juice or lumber or pork bellies or any of these sort of marginal um, instruments? But what we could tell was what are their big trades? You know, are they are they short the yen when the yen is going down? Are they are they you know shorting ten year treasuries as rates are going up? How can you tell? Is it based on filings or disclosures that they have? It's it's just based on their very very recent daily reported information uh, that we take it and we run it through a risk model. And this is information that they legally have to disclose. Is just how the industry works, or why is this information available? Well, in in a case of let's say you know a lot of the the big guys have mutual funds, not ETFs, but mutual funds. So you can look at all these mutual funds, and and we know on Monday morning how all these guys did on Friday, Thursday, Wednesday, Tuesday, etc. Uh, there are also sources of information on similar sources of information, but for the hedge fund versions of them, um, it's that certain databases have. And so this is an area where there's a lot of daily data. And so our whole approach is basically looking at their recent, we're not looking at 
CFTC reports on positioning. We're not looking at, you know, we're not getting investor letters where they're telling us what they're positioned in. We're just looking at, you know, every Monday, we're looking at the past roughly 20 days of data. And, and it turns out you can take that data and the data is just performance data. You know, how much money did these guys make on Friday? What about Thursday? What about Wednesday? Is that, is that just total performance or how does that give you information of what positioning is or, you know, long or short or certain market? So it's it's sort of the magic of statistics, um, which, and again, I start off by saying I, I'm not a quant, so it took me a while to get comfortable with this. Um, but basically, what what there are these risk models where you can look at an asset, right? And in this case, just consider the strategy to be an asset. And if you know what the underlying drivers are, you can run it through a model and the model says, all right, so, you know, this is what, this is when it was going up and down over the past three or four weeks. And this is how oil was going up and down. And this is how gold was going up or down. And this is how um, the S&P was going up or down. And what the model does is basically say what portfolio long and short of all of these different futures contracts would match that performance, match the performance. Right. All right. And so it's an estimate, right? It's not perfect. And sometimes the model could be fooled, right? Because sometimes it thinks they were short gold, but really they were long something else. But but usually if gold, if it's fooled, it means because gold and whatever the other thing is have been moving together because of something else, because of some big underlying thing. So so it's an approximation. It doesn't get it 100% right. It's not a you know it's correlation of, 0.8 to 0.85, which is very good in statistical terms, but it's not to two decimal places. Correlation to the the, the hedge funds, the hedge fund, or the index? Is it the the Sockgen? Is that the one that you guys are matching, or is there that's the one, one we most closely match? Okay, the Sockgen CTA hedge. Yeah, it, which is basically that it's the hedge fund index of trend it's the twenty largest managed futures CTA trend hedge funds, of which about half call themselves trend following but trend following is the big driver of, of their performance yeah when you say large uh is it just referring to aum yes okay um yeah and so so you know back to the point about um you know what we always say about what we do is is that there are plenty of things that uh when you're talking about the large funds their pnl is generally going to come from the um uh from from the big trades right so if if somebody handed you a billion dollars to do options trading, you're going to do very different options trading than you're going to do with 20 million or 30 million, right? And so, so part of the reason we focus on the big guys is because these these are the favorites of the institutional investor community, but they're also the ones who are generally. I mean, the space overall has probably made 150 billion dollars this year um, trading uh, in these markets. You're not making that kind of money in pork bellies. So just to uh, step back a little bit, uh, kind of for the benefit of the audience uh, and, and explain a couple of things. In the beginning, you mentioned one of the reasons you guys did what you want to do is because if you pick individual managers in the space, even if they're the superstars, and you mentioned the guy who did well last year might not do well this year, and you're basically referring to the dispersion of performance between individual managers. And that's something investors would not want to have because you just can't figure out if you're going to do good or bad in a given year. And so you guys are trying to get exposure to the entire space by looking at the performance of the largest players 
and using that data to almost kind of aggregate or estimate their positioning. Um, and that goes back to the way, once you have that information, how do you guys express the trade? Sure. And you guys also just use futures, right? Um, yeah. To replicate, and you say it is essentially replication, and that's a term that's been used in, in in this space before. And so you're trying to replicate the positions of those large players that you are analyzing. Exactly. Um, but and I think you've mentioned this before. You know, whereas they may trade dozens of markets, um, just for efficiency reasons, just for uh, I don't think you don't need to trade as many markets, right? You focus on what markets um, or how many. Yeah, so we, we we focus on what we call sort of 10 major markets. So things like two-year treasury, 10-year treasury, and 30-year treasury. Um, you know, we don't we do not do uh, Japan government bonds. We don't do British gilts. Um, uh, we focus on the yen and the euro in the currency markets. Uh, we don't even worry about the British pound sterling or the Swiss franc. Um, on the equity side, it's only the S&P 500 uh, non-US developed and emerging markets. And then on the commodity side, it's only gold and oil. And, and, you know, back to your point about what we're trying to do, what, what, when we, we were trying to create something that was as close to an index, an investable index of guys to do this, um, of, of the strategy. And so, you know, for us, I think for guys who pick funds for a living, um, uh, you know, part of the, their value add and part of. I think the fun of what they do on a day-to-day basis is to decide who's going to be best this year. You know, we think we think they have the best opportunity set in the current environment, and and so you know our next dollar is going to go to him, um, uh, or her. Uh, uh, what we do is 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 very very different in that it's 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 designed to be very boring. It's yeah. designed to be. Or I'll say robust. Maybe that's another way. Well, yeah. I, I mean, fund selectors find it boring. Okay. Because, um, you know, I mean, and and the way that we try to outperform, um, is a little bit controversial. But but what we found is that, you know, often when these guys are making ten dollars, and and I'm talking about the hedge fund land. So this is you know what your local pension plan is invested in. Often when 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 these guys are making ten, uh, uh, clients are making five. When you get through the fees, because of fees, right? Okay. Because of fees, and and it turns out we can actually, with a simple portfolio, we can replicate. We think just about ten, and but by charging less, you do better than actual investors in the hedge funds do. Not by being, you know, not by building a more clever model that 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 does better than everybody else, but simply by cutting out fees and expenses. And so, you know, we have this expression that we we coined in two thousand eleven. That in hedge funds, because those fees are so high, fee reduction is the purest form of alpha, and and by that we meant just that, you know, if 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 we can just if, if in, in a sense if we're just cutting out a lot of fees and expenses, the alpha that they're generating, the alpha generated by their strategies, more of it comes back to to clients when you charge less, and so our hope is since we are we charge. I mean, this year, I would guess, you know, we're making less than one tenth of what a a per dollar of what a good CTA hedge fund is making this year. One tenth, like so, ninety percent cheaper than what they're doing this year. What's the expense ratio right now for DBMF? Well, so so the twenty percent, the expense ratio in DBMF is eighty-five basis points. Okay, but but now but now imagine you're a fund that has the twenty percent incentive fee. And and the overall space was up, 
28%, I think, through yesterday. Um, so the space of 28%, but that's that's after somebody took 20% of the profits. So it's probably up 35, 36, wow, 37% okay. before fees. Okay. So this year, even though you're thrilled, you're up 28%. Um, uh, remember that they're getting paid 800 basis points before right. you get paid. And so, so it turns out that that you know in years where the returns of the space industry are low, that's not as big of a deal. It's a very very big deal in uh, in a year like this. And I'm not sure I'm supposed to. I don't think I'm probably not going to talk about performance. But again, if you look at performance of what we do over time, you see in periods of time where that fee differential makes a huge difference. It adds up when you compound yeah. it over multiple years. No, yeah, that that makes sense. Um, I was going to say fees aside. Is there any, what would kind of be the difference between what you guys do and like what Abbey Capital does? Because I think they have mutual funds that are essentially collecting a bunch of managers as well to get rid of that individual manager risk. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm actually, you know, I've told people that on the mutual fund side, uh, so first of all, it's a mutual fund. It's not an ETF. Right. Um, right. It's the expense ratio is probably double what, what, what DBMF is uh, because they've got to pay themselves and also pay. The underlying hedge funds and, yeah. and they don't they don't they don't pay them the full two and twenty as a obviously okay. what I've what I would one and twenty what I've described but um but no they're and they're trying to do the same thing that Strategic, we do strategically similar and and that absolutely idea, philosophically yeah. I guess and okay. I and I and I tell people you know when I talk to RIAs about what we do and they say if they say we can only invest in one mutual fund who would you pick I, it's Abby right I think what they're doing is 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 great for the space uh, I'm a huge fan of the firm. Um, our, our approach is very different. It's 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 it would be hard for them to do what they do in an ETF. Okay, you, know, you have you have to disclose your positions every day. You know, I don't know that they want people to be seeing how many lumber contracts they have. Oh, okay. How many you're saying e- ETFs have to disclose every day. Is that what you? Yeah, you, you can okay. see you can see every every morning you can look up and see exactly what we're invested in to the penny. Okay, that's that's not that that, that level of scrutiny is not something that most hedge funds even in a space like this are 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 thrilled with okay got got it um <clears throat> so another question i had was because of the capital efficiency of futures and you know the implied leverage that you guys you know may or may not use even if the strategy and the and the idea and the direction and the thesis is the same the actual return and there and and by that coin the the, the potential volatility, it's all a function of just kind of the sizing. So like the way you guys have sized the trades, what's kind of like the ideal level of return and potential volatility? Like what are you guys sort of aiming for? Because I again, like the same strategy, you can just size up and down. And if you double the size, you make twice, but max drawdowns sure. twice. So what's kind of the goal, I guess, that that you guys are trying to do with, so, with the current setup anyways? I know that yeah. will change. So again, we're we're a little so every single one of the hedge funds that is part of this you know universe of target funds that that each one of them has their own elaborate risk management systems, vol targets, and other things like that. Um, so we we inherit what they what they've what they've decided in their flagship funds. Back to the capital efficiency. I mean, ETFs are um, if you're an institutional investor or I, I, you know, when you talk about how you guys trade options, you can do things with incredible leverage and incredible capital, you know, capital efficiency. Um, 
we can do that for an institutional investor who came to us directly and if we just invested in futures contracts because the margin is tiny on it right i mean it might be might be five dollars out of 100 or 10 out of 100. um uh but in in an etf land it's i it's i i say it's not capital efficient right so so the expectation is the guys that we're tracking uh have a volatility of maybe eight percent when you look at the overall pool and uh and within that you know the expectation is that over time you'd have sort of a mid to higher single digit return net of fees um so it's it's designed and it's going to be lumpy like you'll get a year like this where the space is up 30 you go through some years where it doesn't do much um but uh but it's not a uh the i mean years and years and years ago the original versions of these funds were absolutely crazy from a risk perspective i mean they'd go up 200% one year give 80% back the next year i mean it was just absolutely they were they were all over the place as the business became business became institutionalized and people look at it more through the lens of what are my expected returns on stocks and bonds what are my expected returns and 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 how does it help when i add this into it um it's designed to be i would say a smoother and steadier return than the old days or what your guys could do if they wanted to you know buy and sell some of these instruments themselves yeah i guess that's a good point because like i said if i if i if i knew or had some trend following model and i knew the direction and the trends and I was doing myself, I could just simply leverage, ratchet the leverage up or down. But I guess since you guys are replicating that space, essentially trying to follow the index, it's just basically following what the that space is doing in, Very, in general. I, I go back to my, I, I would reiterate my boring statement. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's you know, we're, you know, like when 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 people look at this, when asset, all, so our, our, most of the guys I talk to are guys who are asset allocators who are thinking, you know, Okay, I think stocks are going to do 4% per annum over the next 10 years. And I think this strategy can do 5% per annum and it's going to, but it's going to soften the drawdowns on my, on, on my equities and my bonds. Like that's, that's, the, that's the framework that most people think about. So when you originally described it from a collateral perspective or as a, you know, as part of kind of a core allocation, it's designed to not be something that, you know, goes down 30% overnight, you can lose 10% over over some period of time through kind of a series of whipsaws and stuff. But but again, because these guys, when the trend breaks, uh, one of the great advantages of strategies is that uh, the models, you know, uh, no model holds on to a position because, you know, because they're they're hoping it's going to recover. If it's if if the data says it's time to get out, it just gets out. So they're very, very good at 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 cutting positions, cutting losses, and and moving on, and that helps to mitigate downside over time. So it's in a sense, it's 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 like having an incredibly disciplined trader. Yeah, and um, one thing I was just curious, I think someone mentioned the the other day because there is, like I said, they, they cut a position when the trend reverses or whatever. There, so there is some turnover in the the positions, and the the is there some kind of distribution or how does the taxes work for someone just buying and holding DBMF? So yeah, so so some people. So I'm going to do a big, um, you know, massive disclaimer that I'm not a tax advisor, or so on and so forth. Sure. Um, in general, the income from a futures-based portfolio is taxable every year. So okay. in general, if you make ten, you'll get ten of taxes. Um, uh, sometimes that's of a somewhat better tax treatment than you might get. You know, short-term capital gains or something on an options contract, but uh, 
but sometimes it's 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 equivalent. It's not. I've never. I don't consider this to be a super tax efficient product. It's maybe marginally more tax efficient than some of the other stuff out there. Um, and and it's not like an S and P five hundred ETF where where you know all of the capital gains just magically disappear over time. Okay. Yeah. So, so buy and holding. If you're up X percent, you'll get something from your broker at the end of the exactly. year. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. What happened? Basically, what you have is you know if we've made ten dollars, you'll get a, a ten dollar something around a ten dollar distribution in December, and then most people take the portion they need to pay on taxes and then reinvest uh, uh, back into the ETF. Okay. Got it. All right. Yeah. And and the reason I was asking about kind of the sizing and leverage was because again, go, just kind of circling back to my goal with you know introducing something like this and just thinking about position sizing and like and you mentioned not just thinking of this in in as opposed in lieu of S and P or or whatever, but sort of in tandem with and you know then we can go back and there's all kinds of different back testing things where we can plug in the numbers and and do different blends and and see. An aggregate, you know, how a court portfolio with you know DBMF, S and P, you know, whatever else there is, um, and, and so really, my goal is just to introduce this to my audience and kind of give them an idea, like, hey, this is something that's out there and something new that we might not have traditionally thought of that you can use, especially because when we trade options, we really can just see that as an overlay. That just it's it's like the magic of portfolio margin. I think that's oh, yeah. that's one of the only free lunches is this portfolio margin because it's almost like running two separate portfolios, one on top of the other. And it's incredible. No, I mean, it's incredible what's happened with. I mean, again, back when I started, long. I mean, this was all dark magic stuff. <laughs> I mean, shorting stocks, buying options. Like, I mean, this was it was you know. I mean, I remember. Uh, meeting with guys at Goldman Sachs who who ran kind of their most sophisticated prop trading group, and you know, and they're talking about how they could price these things. I mean, again, it was it was it, it, there has been such a, f- a phenomenal democratization and infrastructure that's been built to give people the tools to do this. I think it's 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 absolutely um, extraordinary. I mean, back you you mentioned one thing about sort of integrating it, and I'll just throw this out as as another possibility is we launched. A second ETF in December 2019. It's much smaller than the managed futures one, but we replicate equity long short. Um, What's the symbol? DBEH. Okay. Like dynamic beta equity hedge. And, um, but what we're seeing more and more people looking at is actually pairing. Uh, it's got about half the risk of the SP, but I think it's, it's done very well uh, since inception. You, you guys can run the numbers. Um, but, uh, but basically I think what people are thinking is if I want a combined package, uh, then combining those two in either a 50, 50 allocation or something close to it ends up looking quite good. When did that one launch? December, 2019. So we hit our three-year track record in about two months. Okay. And equity long short, is that just us equities or is that, I mean, I'm sure it's on the website, but what, well, so we, we do, we do exactly the same thing. So we just do with futures contracts again. Okay. Um, so it's it's a longer discussion, but basically, you know, what we want to know are these guys increasing or decreasing their equity risk? Are they shifting from one major market to another? And so we're just trying to capture their really, really, really big trades, but in with these super liquid futures contracts and put it into an ETF. And so the idea there is to run with about half the risk of the equity markets, but maybe pick up seventy-five or eighty percent of the of the returns over time, because 
those shifts that we're picking up can often be quite valuable. And okay. if, you don't, if, you, if it's in a fee efficient ETF, you can you can take a lot of it home with you. And and I guess just like uh, um, EBMH is trying to replicate like the SOC gen, is there like an equivalent um, index that DBEH is would be considered um, we, like we an equivalent? We created our, our, our own essentially. So it's not, um, uh, it's, we created our own index essentially with about 40 funds. Um, okay. uh, it, but it's, but you can look at any, standard equity long short um uh hedge fund index barclays hedge has them pivotal path has them uh a firm called hfr has them anything depending upon where what what your source of data is there's there's a lot of just look up an equity long short uh hedge fund index yeah no definitely uh that's a, a nice little extra thing we can we can another rabbit hole for us to go down but uh, <laughs> you got it. But, uh all right andrew um this has been really enlightening uh really entertaining fun to chat with you I was, I was looking forward to this um followed you on a couple other podcasts and you know the guys in my group we we've been sharing them back and forth and i think a few of our guys that already started buying some some shares so uh it, it's it's been really a pleasure to uh, speak with you and i really appreciate you coming on to uh to share the 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 honor is mine i'm very very grateful for having me on and and uh you know congratulations with everything you're that you're doing there all right thanks again be in okay. touch you will.